This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. So welcome to our podcast in MyHeart.net. And today we'll be discussing, can a heart attack affect your cancer? This is our series on cardio-oncology, and today we have our special guest, Dr. Jan Liu, who's Director of Cardio-Oncology at Ascension Seton in Texas. So Jan, thank you very much for taking the time, and welcome to MyHeart.net. Thank you, Ali, and it's uh, great to be back here again uh, to you know have more fun to talk about this very important topic for this very special patient population. So today we'll discuss some of the interaction between cancer and heart disease with Dr. Liu, who's obviously uh, very an expert in the field. He's done some of the seminal work and the research in that field. We'll discuss how cancer treatment can affect your blood vessel, and in particular, we'll discuss how new target cancer therapy uh, can affect the blood vessels. Finally, we'll discuss uh, some of the challenges in treating cancer patients presenting with a heart attack. So Jan, most of us are new to this uh, world of cardio-oncology, but obviously you've been there since the very inception of the field. And in particularly, uh, I can recall one of the articles you wrote in 2009, you published on the shared pathway of cancer and coronary artery disease. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yes, absolutely. So the, uh, it's actually interesting how I got, uh, you know, initially involved uh, in this part of, very, to me, very important uh, um, research that is a shared pathway between cancer and heart disease, and more specifically, coronary artery disease. Uh, a little story is, is that uh, that's the time actually I was uh, um, actually doing my postdoctorate research uh, uh, training uh, with a very, uh, uh, you know, to me, one of the most prestigious oncologists in the world is Dr. Norman Sharpless. Uh, now, we had a very common interest. That is a molecule called P16. Now, Dr. Sharpless, he's the one who really, you know, done a, a fundamental breakthrough work on P16, you know, nationally and internationally. But at that time, uh, I was really interested to look at some of the molecular pathways for heart disease because, you know, as a cardiologist, I'm going to look at, you know, something that's relevant to the disease I'm directly treating. Then uh, in 2007, there's actually a milestone of genomic-wide association study, or what we call GVA study, that, you know, basically that's the year that total, I think, seven studies came out, all of which are large-scale uh, they're all of them published very important journals to establish the highest risk genetically, for example, SNP or polymorphisms, uh, you know, in our DNA that is associated with coronary disease. And that's the time that biggest signal or the one that has highest risk genetically is right next to the molecule P16. Now, P16, uh, as some of you may or may not know in terms of audience, it, it is a very important tumor suppressor gene. So it is actually the absence of P16 could lead to many types of cancer. 
such as melanoma, you know, lung cancer, all of which. So it is very, to me, it's very interesting to me at that time to see that, oh, the genetics risk is actually right next to this uh, uh, tumor suppressor gene when we actually are talking about coronary artery disease. And then at that time, we really uh, uh, put together some, uh, you know, research, both both actually in a molecular level, in mouse model, and in human uh, patient level, uh, have shown that P16 uh, is actually directly involved in the development of coronary disease. Um, and the fundamentally, what, fundamentally, what we find is that, you know, it, P16 essentially is a molecule that controls cell cycling or cell proliferation. And because absent of P16, you have uncontrolled self-proliferation that may lead to cancer. But the same process, if it happened in the heart artery, we talk about a plaque formed in artery, and then some of the immune cells start to proliferating uncontrollably, and that will lead to atherosclerosis or coronary disease, and that's essentially the same disease process. It's basically uncontrolled proliferation. Of course, we showed, you know, by uh, uh, knockout mice, basically we created mouse that's deficient in P16, especially in their monocyte. And what we find is that, yes, those, those you know, um, animals could have higher risk of coronary disease or, in general, atherosclerosis. We also looked at some of the patients where we find that, you know, if they are have a low expression of P16, they could have be a, a, a much higher risk, genetic risk for coronary disease. And that mediator is an RNA that is bridging the P16 and the the genetic polymorphism that find by those GOS studies. So, at DNA level and uh, um, and also a mouse model and a, you know patient level, we have luckily shown that no, there is a connection and. This connection really showed there is a shared pathway between cancer and cardiovascular disease, specifically in this situation, coronary disease. But also other studies later on, for example, the study in 2018 showed in heart failure patients, actually there's connection uh, between heart failure and cancer development. And then in 2020, Two years, two years before, two years after the, uh, one years after the last study, there's uh, actually studies shown that in breast cancer patients, the heart attack could increase the risk of breast cancer progression. So the heart attack could be directly linked to the breast cancer, you know, uh, disease process. So um, it is really, uh, you know, obviously uh, shocking, but you know. And at the end of the day, where we find that back in 2009 and gradually become one of the most important foundation uh, for cardio-oncology because uh, now we're talking about cardio-oncology is not only, uh, you know, just uh, overlapping of heart disease and cancer, not only it's just cardiotoxicity from chemotherapy, but we're also talking about genuinely the shared fundamental molecular pathway between those two disease processes. And that's, to me, it's very encouraging as a cardio-oncologist and very important when we utilize the treatment for this you know, specific patient population. Well, this is very important, this interaction, and particularly relevant to the 16 million survivors of cancer 
there's also uh, a lot of shared risk factors among cancer and uh, cardiac patients, aren't they? Absolutely. So, um, as you said, 16 million, and then by 2040, it's going to be 26 million, and, and you know, by projection. And so, a lot of cancer survivors, and they all, you know, have very similar risk factors. And those risk factors not only could be have could have contributed to the cancer development, but also could be very important risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Uh, they're definitely a unique patient population. And not only for us to monitor their heart disease, but also it's very unique population in terms of how we treat their cardiovascular disease uh, because their re- response may be different when you have a cancer and when you're on chemotherapy. So this is particularly important for our patients um, with cancer. How frequently do we see acute coronary syndrome or heart attack in those patients? So surprisingly, uh, to me, surprisingly frequent, um, you know, than we initially thought. Uh, obviously, it's a, it's still a relatively smaller risk uh, for chemotherapy compared to other common risks such as you know fatigue, uh, low energy, all that. But uh, we've actually seen um, significant uh, occurrence of coronary artery disease, visceral spasm or myocardial infarction in the setting of different cancer therapeutics. And I'll give you several examples, right? The one of the most common one is probably 5-FU-based therapy. And um, it, is, it is very uh, uh, traditional therapy. It's been around for a long period of time. But it's been known to be causing vasospasm. Basically, you may not have uh, you know, coronary artery disease, but your heart artery may get nervous and start constricting. And it, that leads to this vasospasm uh, um, phenomenon that could cause chest pain. And at times, if it's severe and long-lasting, it could lead to myocardial infarction. And I personally, and also my colleague in our program, in our cardiac oncology clinic, have treated numerous patients uh, with this type of situation. Sometimes the treatment will be outpatient, meaning we we may actually prescribe some of the, what we call endothelia stabilizing agents, such as atorvastatin. We may give them nitroglycerin to relax artery, sometimes isosorbibe, a long-term nitro, to counteract that visospasm uh, effect of 5-FU. But we also have patients that we have to hospitalize to in order for them to get 5-FU infusion because the visospasm is so severe. And we actually have cases we have to uh, do intervene, intervention in the setting of a 5-FU-induced coronary spasm. So it is a big category. And we'll, obviously, when we see so many patients who's being treated for 5-FU, we see more of those, even though overall, obviously, the risk of heart attack from 5-FU is still fairly small. But it's obviously severe potential risk and really needs uh, a cardio-oncology evaluation and close monitor by a cardio-oncology uh, um, specialist. Another example is that we actually had a patient, uh, a lung cancer patient who's undergoing cisplatin treatment, so plant-based uh, um, chemotherapy. Um, and then six hours later, we're having cardiac arrest and ended up having a coronary arterial thrombosis uh, without any history of coronary artery disease that needed intervention, two-vessel intervention. So it's multiple thrombosis in multiple coronary arteries at the same time, shortly after some of the 
chemo agents such as cisplatin. And those, you know, fundamentally, those agents could cause endothelial dysfunction and could lead to the not only the um, the risk of thrombosis, like we have talked about last session, increased risk of venous thrombosis, but also increased risk of arterial thrombosis. At the same time, lead to this arterial dysfunction and combine those two really led to the multiple occurrence of clot or thrombosis in multiple coronary arteries. The newer agents, we know uh, some of the small molecule, uh, small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitors, they all could be also an anion risk factor for arterial thrombosis. But radiation therapy, as you know, even though short-term-wise radiation therapy may not cause a significant amount of complication from arterial standpoint, uh, but radiation therapy, almost uh, all of them, if it's high dose, could lead to uh, early onset or premature atherosclerosis as a long-term complication. And those patients will need to be monitored or surveilled for carotid disease or coronary disease, depends on where the radiation field was when they received radiation therapy. So, uh, but combination of acute radiation therapy and other factors, we could, you could also see acute event of arterial thrombosis because radiation obviously could cause damage short term of the endothelia of the arterial a coronary artery or a coronary artery or other arteries, but at the same time, if the if the patient has other risk factors such as 5FU treatment, and those patients are at higher risk of arterial thrombosis compared to the patient who's receiving either one alone or not receiving uh, either one of those therapies. Uh, this is important, and particularly in the field of chemotherapy, the oncologists are really at the forefront of personalized medicine, and they are giving some chemotherapy uh, chemotherapy agents that are you know have a very specific uh, mode of action uh, for example in the VEGF where where we intervene and attack the blood vessel feeding the tumor how does it affect actually the arteries elsewhere in the body yeah and as you said this you know VEGF uh, there most of those VEGF inhibitors they're small molecules and some of most of those extra tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So they're great treatment, add-on treatment, and also uh, just as a first-line treatment for a lot of different type of cancers. However, as a relatively new therapy compared to uh, therapies such as the anthracycline-based, they also have several other you know, risks for patients who have cardiovascular risk or cardiovascular disease. First of all, they could actually cause cardiomyopathy directly. They could be leading to heart failure. But second of all, they could definitely cause potential arterial complications because the way it works, as you mentioned, is to interfere the vascular function. So very often we're seeing uncontrolled hypertension or suddenly increased hypertension in those patient population. And many times those type of hypertension are very hard to tackle or very hard to treat. And usually requires a, a very strong uh, calcium channel inhibitor to be at the first line and an add-on such as beta blockers or uh, uh, ARB inhibitor to control the blood pressure. Um, but hypertension, if it's uncontrolled, of course, it's going to be one of the most one of the important risk factors for the arterial thrombosis. Uh, but as a mechanism, VEGF inhibitor, you know, by interfering the arterial function, uh, will actually have high risks leading to the potential arterial thrombosis too uh, at the same time. So those, so this is also a new patient 
population. We really, uh, really actually pay a lot of attention to. We're cautious because, you know, they could develop cardiomyopathy. So we wanted to make sure their heart function, their global longitudinal strain, which is more sensitive marker of off, you know, uh, heart function. Those are normal, you know, before they uh, during the treatment. But at the same time, uh, we we really do want to pay attention to how their you know uh, symptom is, whether there's any indication they could have coronary ischemia or other arterial complications, or you know, a peripheral ischemic uh, ar- ar- arterial disease such as you know ischemic legs or ischemic tones. So uh, we talked about um, how the cancer uh, treatment can affect the blood vessel in the patient. And um, we have now the situation and the challenge uh, where we have to treat sometimes patients that present with a heart attack. It happens quite commonly. It's about maybe 5 to 10% of all the patients coming with acute coronary syndrome. Uh, there are also cancer patients being uh, treated with those chemotherapy. There are some challenges in these patients. I mean, they have a tendency to bleed. They have low platelets. How do we um, treat patients with a heart attack and, and a cancer? Now, uh, very important, but absolutely challenging area of practice, as you mentioned, very precisely. Uh, those cancer patients, obviously, they're already having a lot of comorbidities, and they probably been receiving some chemotherapies, other therapies. So they're usually actually fairly sick from clinically. And then obviously, if this if they're complicated with arterial thrombosis event or heart attack, for example, and not only the treatment itself could cause potential more complications, but also patients themselves has a, uh, it's just, a, you know, uh, they're not intent to tolerate procedure or treatment as well compared to someone that's completely healthy. So those are the important factors to consider. But the other factor to consider directly is how we treat heart attacks. As you mentioned, we treat heart attacks with, again, blood thinners, antiplatelets, and stenting. You know, the procedure or surgery uh, is aimed to open up the artery, or what we call revascularization. That can be done by the stent, put into that blood vessel, and then followed by, most of the time, two antiplatelets, or what we call surgical revascularization, it's what we call bypass surgery. And it is uh, such important ever practice. And I think to, to me, you know, uh, also it's one of the most challenging area of practice for our interventional cardiologists. Uh, because basically means your risk of complication is much higher, much higher compared to a regular patient population. But here, here are several, I think, criteria or rules we stick to. Is first of all, we have to look at the balance of medical therapy or medical management and procedure-based revascularization. So can this patient be treated with medication only if the patient is super high risk for bleeding? For example, if their platelet is only five or ten, and or they already have active bleeding, they are they have you know diagnosis of brain cancer. So in those patient population, we have to be able to say, hey, which type of therapy is going to provide the best, safest overall treatment so that can, the patient can have a, the best overall outcome. And then balance that with the other side is the treatment would be procedure related, either PCI or what we call stenting or bypass. 
when we consider a, a, a PCI procedure, I think most basic information we want to make sure uh, that we have is the platelet count. So we do want to make sure that the patient has sufficient amount of platelet. And if we do have to transfuse, transfuse platelet to, uh, to reduce the risk of bleeding, we do that. But I think in general, if a patient has a platelet amount of more than 100,000, that's, you know, that's an area that we feel much more comfortable to go ahead to potentially treat an acute heart attack with PCI or stenting. Obviously, assuming the patient does not have any other significant conditions such as brain cancer and high risk of bleeding because any stent we're putting, we have to follow with two uh, antiplatelets for up to six months to a year. So that part has to be considered. So based on the their lab data at the time of heart attack and the patient's overall status, we'll make a decision. It's going to be a hard decision either way to do either in intervention or not. And if a patient really have not no significant amount of other contraindications, just low platelet, and then we can transfuse the platelet above 50 at times, we can still do, obviously, PCI or stenting. And obviously, the risk is a little higher in terms of bleeding, uh, especially when it comes to access. You know, we do uh, our cath, radially and femorally, and then no-brainer radio process, uh, access is probably much preferred in this situation. It's, to me, it's a superior access, superior way to do cath anyway in overall uh, population. But in this specific population, I think radio access, access is going to be even more important uh, because the risk of bleeding is going to be much reduced in that situation. And if we have to, if the patient does not have any radio access and we have to go femorally in those situations, then it, Highly encouraged to uh, to have our interventional colleague to put in a closure device so that the risk of bleeding from exercise is going to be much reduced in that situation. So, so I think you know overall it's really the balance of medical management and procedure or surgery related treatment, and then look at the uh, acute in an acute situation, look at the lab data and patient's overall status, especially their bleeding risk, their overall cancer prognosis. And then obviously make a decision going from there and then maximize our effort in terms of exercise, you know, potential need of transfusion for platelet and potentially try to intervene the only culprit lesion, but no other, you know, uh, lesions at one time so that we can reduce from our end the risk of complication, especially bleeding, when we do have to go ahead for uh, intervention. Now, when it comes to bypass, as you mentioned, surgical revascularization is going to be tricky uh, because it's, it's, involved, it's going to involve another team, the cardiovascular surgery team. Uh, and that, you know, cardiovascular surgery team, they're going to look at, hey, how much long-term outcome I can provide for this patient by doing a open chest, open heart surgery, and the patient will be put on external circulation. So that, I think, to me, it's going to be case by case. I think if patients do have advanced cancer, if their prognosis is poor, uh, it's going to be tough to qualify them for bypass surgery. However, for patients who's having good response to cancer treatment, they may have really good survival rate, you know, down the road three or five years or 10 years, then it's very reasonable to consider a bypass surgery based on a team effort, basically involving oncologists, cardiologists, and the cardiovascular surgery team together 
with patient and family make a decision, what we call shared decision making at that time. So this is really emphasizing uh, the importance of working together. It seems like the heart team keeps growing. And, and I think the relationship between the cardio-oncologists and the interventionalists is particularly important, isn't it? I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Well, I think this, is, uh, this was a, a very, very interesting podcast. I want to thank you. Uh, Jan, um, you know, today we discussed a lot. We, we, we discussed the interaction between cancer and heart disease. We, dis- uh, we also discussed how the cancer treatment can affect your blood vessel. And finally, the, we discussed some of the challenge in treating a heart attack in a patient who has cancer. Um, this is obviously very, very uh, important to really work together with the interventionalists as well as the cardio-oncologists. And the heart team is uh, taking a new dimension in the treatment of patients with uh, coronary artery disease. And I know next time I have a patient with cancer and a heart attack, I'm going to give you a call, Jan. <laughs> Absolutely. It's my absolute pleasure to be here today. And it's, uh, uh, it's really fun. And uh, as you said, it's very important to talk about this. Uh, this, you know, very interesting, you know, situation, but very challenging situations. But at the end of the day, this is a very specific, very unique patient population. We love to take the best care of them. And thank you so much for having me today. Thank you very much, Jan. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.